Well, today we're concluding our series in the book of Isaiah, which has been, uh, we've been exploring, as we've been exploring, really paints three images from Isaiah's perspective of this coming one sent by God that we now look back on and know is Jesus, taking our lead from the New Testament authors and Jesus himself. God was telling us in advance what Jesus would be like and his role in his saving plans for his world. And one way to think about Isaiah's book as a whole is to see it as painting three portraits of Jesus. I know this is stretching back two weeks now before carols, so I thought I'd give you um, a bit of a, a heads up and an orientation back into Isaiah before we get into it. But these three portraits, firstly, uh, in the first half of Isaiah, Isaiah we uh, hear his kingly and just rule, which Sorry, Elliot, there's some sort of humming going on with the, um, my microphone that's really putting me off. Anyway, see how you go uh, with that one. Um, firstly, his kingly and just rule, which Isaiah contrasts against the long line of kings uh, Israel had. Uh, the second portrait was Jesus as the suffering servant, which deepens our understanding of why Jesus had to go to the cross for the sins of the world so that salvation could be offered to all. And uh, just recently, in the two weeks before carols, we explored Isaiah's third and final portrait of Jesus as the warrior king, who has the strength and might to bring God's justice and destroy every last bastion of opposition to God's beautiful plans of restoration and peace for our world, looking forward to a time yet to come to us. Uh, With this kind of at the same time beautiful and unsettling imagery of both God's salvation flowing to the far islands and corners of God's world, along with God's right vengeance and destruction of all evil to those same far places. And it's this third and final portrait of Jesus as warrior king that is far less known, less preached upon and more challenging for us to hear. Uh, Like all our sermons, it's available on our website and it's really worth wrestling with this sort of lesser-known portrait of Jesus deeply. So before the reading today that we're just about to hear, uh, I thought I'd just kind of reorient you both to the book and also a couple of chapters that we've uh, passed over in between time. So since we last left Isaiah, Isaiah's cried out to God in prayer on behalf of the people and he brings together the heart of our human response to all that God has revealed through his prophet. Uh, Without God's intervention, Isaiah knows the unfaithfulness of the human heart and our inability to follow God with integrity. And wrestling with the complex issue of our role and God's role and why we are the way we are, Isaiah cries out in chapter 63, which will uh, pop up on screen, thanks Eliza, Uh, 63 verse 17, As Isaiah cries out, why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. And then he pleads to God in the opening verses of chapter 64, which is again uh, on screen, which would be great. As Isaiah says, says to God, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains would tremble before you. Isaiah continues to call on God and concludes uh, in 64 verse 12, just before today's reading, again up on screen, 
He says to God, after all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? So what we're about to have read to us by Helen is God's response to Isaiah's kind of pleading with him. God's answer to, to this is all revealed. So if you haven't already, uh, open up the blue Bibles on your seats to Isaiah 65, which is on page 747 of the Bibles on your seats, as we come to today's reading from Helen. Thanks, Helen. And you'll also be able to follow on the screen behind me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me, to a nation that did not call on my name. I said, here am I, here am I. All day long I've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of impure meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. See, it stands written before me, I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps. Both your sins and the sins of your ancestors, says the Lord. Because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills, I will measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds. This is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes and people say, don't destroy it, there is still a blessing in it, so will I do in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them and there will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Achor a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will fall in the slaughter. But I called, For I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. My servants will eat but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. You will leave your name for my chosen ones to use in their curses. The sovereign Lord will put you to death, but to his servants he will give another name. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the one true God. Whoever takes an oath in the land will swear by the one true God. For the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. 
See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labour in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Thanks, Helen. Well, way back on October 16, as we began our look at the second half of Isaiah's book, I asked you this question that I picked up from my daily devotional guide by a guy called Paul Tripp. And uh, we'll pop it up on screen. Thanks, Eliza. If someone were to ask you what the ultimate final goal of God's grace is, what would you answer? Now, if you're just checking out Jesus for the first time, uh, firstly, a really warm welcome to you. We plant churches like this to share what we think is the best news that anyone on the planet can hear, that because of God's great love for us, we can avoid something bad that we deserve, God's judgment for our offences before God, That's the Christian concept of mercy, uh, not getting something bad that we deserve. And instead, we get a wonderful gift that we haven't earned, which is the Christian concept of grace. That gift is a place in God's family forever, hope and joy now, and eternal life to look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth, as promised uh, in our reading by Isaiah. Uh, All of this is made possible by Jesus that we've seen in Isaiah came to take the punishment that we deserve to bring us peace with God. So when I ask the question, if someone were to ask you what the ultimate final goal of God's grace is, what would you answer? I'm asking the Christians in the room what the big picture goal God has for us as he shows us mercy and grace through Jesus. Because God's grace, if we allow ourselves to be transformed by it, changes every aspect of our lives today. God's grace can make us more thankful and better stewards of what we've been given. God's grace can assist us to communicate in ways that are more loving to others. Uh, God's grace can make you a better citizen or neighbour. God's grace can cause you to be more responsible with the use of your body and more sexually pure. God's grace can make you less anxious and more courageous. 
God's grace can pilot you through disappointment and give you joy even in times of suffering. Yet, as Tripp noted, uh, next slide, thanks Eliza, all of these things are a beautiful harvest of grace. All of these things uh, are things which we should be eternally thankful for. But none of these good gifts is the ultimate and final goal of God's grace. So next slide, here's the bottom line. Sin kidnapped our worship and grace works to restore it to its rightful owner, God. It is only when God is in his rightful place in our hearts that everything else is in its appropriate place in our lives and only powerful grace can accomplish this. Now, I found that a really helpful quote uh, as I've prepared this series on Isaiah as the pressing issue of the day among God's people was their mixing their worship with their one true God that they knew with worshipping the gods of the nations around them. Idolatry, as the Bible terms it. Looking to and seeking blessing and good fortune anywhere and everywhere. As the people not only worshipped the one true God, but also went home and prayed to the gods of fertility, weather and fortune, which incensed God and brought uh, to the people God's disciplinary punishment taking them into exile in Babylon, yet always with Isaiah's prophetic hope of God's restorative grace for all those who waited on and trusted in God alone. For me personally, as I've wrestled with Isaiah, as I've thought about our challenges as part of God's church here on earth today, it's this thought that we too can operate with similarly divided hearts looking to God for blessing, yet living life in such a way that we trust in good things that we're never really meant to trust in, like our education, our careers, our insurances, our finances, our ability to hustle for our security and joy in this world. The idols of our modern world, quite different from Isaiah's day in practice, but at a heart level, I think, really quite the same issue as we hedge our bets, so to speak, looking for joy, assurance and hope in many places. Keeping God in the mix instead of keeping him at the centre. Particularly when I'm tired, worn down or worried, serving God out of a sense of duty rather than a heart captivated by God's grace. And when I have those moments of insight into my own shortcomings, I just bear my own heart at points and then look out to our world where so many have proudly declared that they've moved on from any need for God and that kind of dual concern at my own heart and looking at the world, well, it weighs quite heavily on me. So in recent, in recent weeks, I've resonated with Isaiah's plea for God to overcome our heart's tendency to wander and for God to act in great power so that many more people may know him. To that heavy heart, I find Isaiah 65 a very precious remedy. So let's look at it together now. In response to Isaiah's wholehearted call for God to act, 
The Lord replies, verse 1, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. Now, Israel would have naturally concluded that they were the nation that didn't call on God, that God revealed himself to, which is true as far as a statement goes. Yet, as the Apostle Paul quotes these very verses at the end of Romans 10, we see that God was actually talking about revealing himself to all nations here, to the far islands of the world, as Isaiah would put it. And it was Israel that Isaiah referred to in verse 2 of today's reading that were an obstinate people who provoked God. God is illuminating here something deeply embedded in his character that he longs to be found by people. And he's in the business of revealing himself to people not looking for him. Which I find deeply comforting as a Christian, as we reflect on God revealing himself to the world through Jesus, but also as we look out on our world with concern, a world largely and very proudly declaring that they don't need God anymore. Despite all this, God continues to be found uh, across our world each and every day. In some places, a small and steady stream, like I would describe Australia at the moment. And in other places, in great numbers, in Asia, Africa, and in the last decade, particularly the Arab world. Yet we also see that God pleads in the streets to people through his servants as his offer of forgiveness is held out patiently and consistently lovingly. Our pleading God is rejected still by many and offended deeply. And as people reject God's ways of right living, kind of woven into the fabric of the world and how we work, they, verse 2, as Isaiah says, walk in ways not good and also prefer our own fictions about how the world works, as verse 2 puts it, pursuing their own imaginations. Which is worth unpacking for a moment because what's kind of on the line here is quite substantial because as verse 3 puts it, those who do this provoke God to his very face. They are, verse 5, smoke in God's nostrils and God will repay in full those who offend him so with judgment, as verses 6 and 7 make clear. For a God who desires to be found and reveals himself to those not looking for him, as verse 1 states, who are those who provoke such a reaction from God that verse 2 is aimed at? All day long, Isaiah says, I've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. In the first instance, as Isaiah spoke, it was the Jews who had descended into false religion, offering sacrifices, burning incense, engaging in all sorts of religious practices that kind of promoted sort of self-exaltation. And those in verse 5 illustrate, say, keep away from me, don't come near for I am too sacred from you. You can see a very kind of look down the nose kind of attitude for those who engage in this false religion. That would have spoken very powerfully to Isaiah's first audience. But I'd put it to you 
that what Isaiah is saying here also has a timeless quality that speaks powerfully to something that is true of all man-made religion, whatever form it takes. Is that at its heart, it sets its own self-serving set of rules and accepted beliefs that exclude some and promote a self-righteous, holier-than-thou way to look down at others. Some, quite sadly, of course, have twisted Christianity in this way and rebel against the given-by-God, grace-driven, all-glory-to-Jesus path of standing right with God and promote legalism. Uh, They promote false holiness or quite an angry us-and-them view of the world that fails to engage with love with a world that desperately needs the grace of God shown, lived out, and explain to them. It deeply saddens me when I see that. Yet I suspect what Isaiah is saying here is that it enrages God, it is smoke to his nostrils. I think we could offer a similar critique of the world's religions along the same lines, yet I thought perhaps more pertinent for us is perhaps I see the same sort of self-exalting heart behind many a worldview here in Australia at the moment. It wouldn't be classically termed as a religion, of course, but as a society that has fairly constantly had the good news of Jesus held out to it since colonisation, I see the same rejection of God and his ways in the uh, establishment of a very kind of man-made religious vibe being put forward in the media, community influences and the political elite as they declare that we are the ones who decide what is right and wrong in our world and to have a seat at the table you need to believe what we believe. Sign up to our worldview without question as they believe they hold the high moral ground and declare our self-revealing God is beneath their lofty ideals and has no part in our world's future. So I'd put it to you, whether it's religious or non-religious, puritanical or pagan, what God is taking offence here in Isaiah 65 is all those who make up their own rules for life, setting themselves up as the self-righteous. Those who prefer their own fictions to what God has revealed to us about his world, about his holiness and our sin those who proudly stand apart from God instead of running to our gracious, loving and providing God, who through his king paid the price for our sin so that we could be his forever, welcoming us back into his loving arms. And what God says through Isaiah 65 is that we either receive this right standing, this righteousness as a free gift from God and are blessed beyond measure or we pursue this ultimately futile human project, a project of self-righteousness that is such an offence to God that he would say, verse 5, such people are smoke to my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. And as a result, God declares, verse 6, see, it stands written before me, I will not keep silent, I will pay back in full, I will pay it back in their laps. 
I'm sure you kind of felt it through the Bible reading, but God makes clear there is no middle ground here. Yet for now, God's judgment is held back. Isaiah likens the mixing of the self-righteous with those who look to God for righteousness as a kind of a, a mixed bag or a mixed cluster of grapes, to use Isaiah's turn of phrase, verse 8. This is what the Lord says, as when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes and people say, don't destroy it, there is still a blessing in it. So will I do in behalf of my servants, I will not destroy them all. God says that he will pick carefully through the whole bunch and separate the good from the bad, if there were such a thing. It's probably better to refer to it as the ones who receive their righteousness from God and those who pursue this project of self-righteousness. Those who serve our gracious God and those who simply choose to serve themselves. Uh, Pick it up for me from verse 11. I think Isaiah's turn of phrase is really helpful. He says, but as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword and all of you will fall in the slaughter. For I called and you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. It's kind of imagery from Isaiah's day, spreading a table for fortune and bowls of mixed wine for destiny, just sort of going to kind of the chance of the universe and rejecting the all-giving God. But I think Isaiah's picking out those of all descriptions who are committed to this project of self-rule and self-righteousness, rejecting the God who gives all things pushing away the God who lovingly pursues us, scorning our self-giving God who sent his suffering servant Jesus to die for our sins and cleanse us of them. Um, British poem, uh, sorry, British poet, William Ernest Henningley wrote a poem called Invictus in 1875 that I think really captures the heart of the stubborn, self-glorifying, proud rejection of God of, uh, and embracing self-rule. It was actually quite a moving poem and it's become quite a cultural touchstone for a generation and many since uh, have, it's kind of given them voice to how so many actually feel in our world but would never say so bluntly. Henley, if you kind of look up his biography, had a pretty tough life and Invictus is a moving poem as a result. Quite a tribute to resilience and fortitude and adversity and there's much I actually admire about it, yet pick up the not-so-subtle rejection of God and commitment to self-rule that I think describes the heart of so many in our world. I'll read you the last two verses. Just pop them up on screen. Thanks, Eliza. It says, beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. 
Now, to the Creator God who loves us, who gave us this world, every good thing we enjoy, love, laughter, food, the joy of holding a newborn, isn't it so wonderful to see some uh, new children around church, the joy of being in community with good wine and food, every good thing. This proud kind of self-glorifying rejection of him Well, Isaiah says it has no future. And Isaiah is pretty blunt. It'll end in bloodshed, as verse 12 states. For I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. And so Isaiah Isaiah then, speaking God's words, draws together just how differently the end will look. Blessing to those who willingly draw near to God, embracing his grace and love towards us, or judgment and destruction to those committed to rejecting him in a way that, um, you know, uh, that Invictus captures so strongly. Verse 13, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my servants will eat But you, speaking to those who have rejected God, will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Now, if you're here today just checking out who Jesus is, I totally get how confronting this is. Yet hopefully you could see I'd be failing in my job if I sort of explained away or softened what are clearly meant to be deeply challenging words, we are touching on what God reveals as the root cause of the big picture issue between us and God. Our stubborn commitment to self-rule instead of living in joyful peace and security under God's rule. But we do need to hear these very challenging words built upon the foundation of Isaiah's image of the suffering servant Jesus, which is explained in full so beautifully earlier in Isaiah, who willingly bore God's wrath on our behalf on the cross so that anyone who turns to God can be absolutely free. Yet I don't wish to soften the image of warrior King Jesus in Isaiah, as I suspect many committed to the sort of invictus spirit of being captain of their own soul, who see no need for suffering servant Jesus, may potentially be moved to reconsider when faced with the awesome strength of warrior King Jesus. As Isaiah says, on God's behalf, my servants will sing out the joy of their hearts but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. It doesn't get much more kind of clear-cut than that. So if you're here today or listening online and you haven't willingly bent the knee to King Jesus, I totally get, and we totally get as a church, this, uh, how challenging this is to our soul. I felt this battle many years for myself as someone... Uh, who lived out the first 21 years of my life keeping Jesus at a distance and the last 26 having bent the knee to him. 
I can say from experience that Jesus is a kind king. He's an entirely just king, a loving king, a self-giving king who gave his own life for his servants. Now, do come uh, and join us at our next Life series. Uh, if uh, That's uh, running on the four Thursdays of March next year after we've all had a holiday and got back into the year again. It's a great place to dig into all these questions with good food and drink on us. And we can talk at length about God's grace to us. And as a follower of Jesus now, I really appreciate that Jesus isn't simply meek and mild. He's gentle for sure, but gentleness by definition is someone who restrains their great strength out of love for another. Jesus, as warrior king, is strong enough to defeat all evil, to rescue us from this project of self-rule by dealing with the sin in our hearts while protecting us. It's awesome. Isaiah's been building a beautiful picture of Jesus, bringing both God's salvation to the ends of the earth at the same time as his justice and God's right vengeance to bring to an end every last stronghold of rebellion against our loving creator God. And look just in Isaiah in what it produces. As Isaiah looks to the day, still future for us, when Jesus will return and complete this project as God magnificently intervenes one final time to recreate our world. Verse 17, as God says, See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, says God. In this whole beautiful section, we we see not only joy indescribable uh, for God's servants and innumerable blessings, but also we see God rejoicing in and delighting in being with his people. Pick it up with me from the third line down of verse 22. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. To the problem of our wandering hearts that Isaiah identified, we live in a time now where we can look back and see that God did actually rend the heavens, as Isaiah put it, and come down to us to deliver us from our sin on the cross. And we look forward now, knowing how it will end when Christ returns with the strength to bring an end to our world's project of rebellion and bring salvation to all those who are waiting for him, trusting in God's grace. A grace that turns us from our sins. Sins that kidnapped our worship and gaslighted us into thinking that it's an admirable thing to be captains of our own soul, as Henley embodies in his poem. 
Because I think if we're honest, we see all around us that this self-rule project only brings great suffering to our world and deep inner turmoil. God's grace, however, restores our worship and authority over our lives to its rightful owner, God, who then becomes the captain of our soul. And it is only when God has his rightful place in our hearts that everything else in our lives has its appropriate place. So for me, as I've reflected back over all that I've learned from Isaiah, I find that through this wonderful book, God diagnoses the problems of my heart. He tells us in advance what his sent one, Jesus, would do about it as he came to suffer and die on the cross. And it also encourages me to look forward to Jesus' ultimate victory as warrior king with the strength to bring about the end to our world's rebellion and all of its ill effects that devastate so many. And the strength to bring in this beautiful new world. As I've considered my own heart and how it needs to be challenged and encouraged by Isaiah, and as one of your pastors considered how it might challenge and encourage yours, I think it shakes us from our tendency to want to hedge our bets. As we live in the tension of knowing God in his grace, having God's spirit transform our hearts bit by bit, yet still living with sin and its effect as we await this time that Jesus promises to bring. I think it's a great temptation to my heart, and I'm sure I'm not alone in the room, to trust in God partially, as the people in Isaiah's day did, to look to God for blessing for etern- and for eternal life, yet remain, if I'm honest, captain of my own soul in different facets of my life. Wanting to kind of retain control. I think we do it. We, we want to sort of have our own bits. I want to control my career, my relationships, our households, our finances, our dreams and aspirations. And when we want to retain control over that, we find it so attractive at first. There's something that draws us into it. But in the end, I think it's just tiring. Seeing Jesus through Isaiah as a just and good king, the suffering servant king, and the all-powerful warrior king, however, challenges me, and I hope challenges you, to go all in with Jesus. To say, Jesus, I trust you. I love you. Please help me to give it all over to you. Be captain not only of my soul, but my family, my finances, my career, my aspirations. And help me to live with you as captain of my soul, my life, my all. And as we do so and help each other do so, we find true freedom and true life in Jesus. So ask yourself, what are the aspects of my life that I'm tempted to hold on to, that I need help in giving over to Jesus? It is worthy of deep reflection and prayerfully with the help of your brothers and sisters in Christ to make practical changes in how you do life with Jesus 
as captain of your soul. And to be encouraged that God has done all that is necessary in dealing with our sin, to sustain us as his servants until the day when Isaiah's words will come to pass in all of their fullness. That we will sing together out of the joy of our hearts. All that troubles us in this world will no longer be remembered. It's so good, it's it's impossible to imagine. And we're told we will lack no good thing. Satisfaction, peace, rejoicing will not end. And we will be with God so intimately and personally that Isaiah 65 verse 24 will be our experience that before we call, God will answer. And while we are still speaking, God will hear. Let's close Isaiah in prayer. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we bring before you just that part in all of us in different aspects of our lives where we want to retain uh, being captains of our own soul. Uh, We admit to you that we uh, find so many aspects of this project of of self-rule attractive to us. Uh, Yet, Lord, we pray by the power of your spirit and by your word, and particularly these words from Isaiah, that you would deeply impress upon our hearts that it is a good and right and beautiful and life-giving thing to hand our whole lives over to you and proudly declare that Jesus is captain of our soul. Just pray for uh, each person in the room today, perhaps touched in different ways in this, that you'll show great kindness to us by your spirit. We thank you that you are a merciful and gracious God. And we thank you that you're a God committed to be found by people not looking for for you. We thank you that it is true for so many of us uh, in this building uh, today. And we just pray as we look forward to Christmas and the new year that it will be another year where we get to experience some of the extraordinary blessing of um, uh, being used by you in your project of being found by people not looking for you. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious and very powerful name. Amen.